Amen. There we go. It's good to gather with God's people this afternoon. Amen. Would you stand with me and open up your Bibles to Romans, the eighth chapter, beginning in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. When you get there, say amen. If you need some more time, say hold on. We're on there? Okay. Amen. Well, I'll, I'll get us started and jump on in um, for the reading of God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Go ahead and jump in. Amen. The title of our message this morning is simply, God is for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for your word. Uh, in your word, we find truth. In your word, we find life. Uh, in your word, we find encouragement. Uh, and this is one of the most encouraging passages for me in the scriptures, uh, that no matter what we're going through or who we're up against, when we know that our God is on our side, it changes everything. And so Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning to be reminded of that daily uh, as we live life and experience life challenges and difficulties that we might keep in mind that we serve a God who is big and awesome and wonderful and all-powerful and all-knowing, and that same God knows us intimately, and he is for us. So, Father, we just pray all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was a somewhat chilly morning on January 15th, 2009. Captain Chesley B. Sullenberger was going about his normal routine, preparing to uh, captain a plane that was leaving LaGuardia Airport and headed to Charlotte, North Carolina. So he went through his normal routine that morning, got to the plane and uh, boarded the plane, looked at his manifesto and saw that he had 155 passengers on board. Uh, and he went through all of his checks, 
and balances and prepared to, to leave. Less than three minutes after the plane had taken off, Captain Sully, as they called him, had radioed back to air traffic control and said that they needed to make an emergency landing because for some reason they had hit multiple birds and the birds took out both of their engines and they were going down. Now, if you've been on a plane and you're anything like me, the passengers then heard the only words that you don't want to hear when you're up in the air. We're going down, brace for impact. I don't know about you, but I can imagine these passengers looking around very nervously at one another, tears welling up in their eyes, the fear creeping into the depths of their soul, knowing that this could be their last moments on earth, scrambling to turn their phones back on, to reach a loved one, to say their last goodbyes and their last I love yous, gathering with strangers that you don't even know to pray to a God that you may not even believe in, hoping that he would answer so that this isn't your last moment on earth. Witnesses recall seeing this plane barely clear the George Washington Bridge and slowly descend and hit the water on the Hudson. And for some miraculous reason, this plane did not break apart, but glided softly and gently right onto the Hudson River. As it hit the water, the water begins rushing into the plane and Captain Sully makes sure that every single one of his 155 passengers get off of the plane and onto the, the life raft. After all of this occurred, a lot of professionals and, uh, and, and experienced pilots were hailing Sully as a hero because he had the expertise and, and, and the, the, the skill to navigate landing a plane like this because you can't prepare for this. There's nothing you can do to prepare and simulate birds taking out your engine and having to emergency land. They don't practice this with landing on water with commercial jets. There's nothing you can do to prepare. And as I looked at this story and I read the different accounts and I gathered all this information and I was, I was just amazed and then it struck me. It struck me and this was the one thing that I took away from it. It matters who your pilot is. See, your pilot, when you step onto a plane, is in ultimate control of what happens with you and where you're headed. See, for the Christian, there's a pilot that you have in your life that has ultimate control over your life and, and can only be the one with absolute certainty, guarantee that you make it to your destination on time. And that's where we find ourselves right here in Romans chapter 8. Paul is, is concluding his argument. He's about to drive the nail home in his argument that he's been making since chapter 5. If you look back into chapter 5, he begins chapter 5 and he says, If therefore we have been justified by faith, then we have peace with God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been made right with God and now have peace with him. And so Paul was trying to communicate to his audience that you have been justified. Then in chapter 6, he goes down and he says, we're no longer slaves to sin. You have the right and the authority that comes from God to be able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You've been sanctified. Chapter 7, it says that since you've died to sin and been released from the bounds of the law, which brought knowledge of sin, you've now been reconciled. 
When we get to chapter 8, he says, therefore, those who have been reconciled, there is no longer condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And therefore, God can take the, 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 the sinner that was you, that was a foster child, and adopt you into his family, and you've been adopted. And now he looks forward at your life to a point in time where you will ultimately be glorified. And so Paul transitions his argument and he begins to talk about how God uh, did the work of salvation in you by justifying you and how he's keeping you and making you look more like Jesus by sanctifying you and how he reconciled you from the law and how he's now adopted you and how he is looking forward in your life to the time where he will ultimately glorify you in him. And then Paul says these things. What shall we say to these things? What do you say to that? When you think about all that God is doing and has done to save you, what do you say when you think about just how evil you were and how much of a sinner you were and how much you tried to hide all of your mess and how much you rejected God? That's why in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because no one searches after God. No one seeks God on their own. Nobody wants anything to have to do with God. And if you don't know it by now, I'm here to tell you that that was you. And that was me. And then when you think about the fact that God just for some strange reason, decided to lavish his love upon you, to justify you and sanctify you and reconcile you. What do you say to these things? And Paul continues on and he says, he says this, there's only but one thing to say when I look at the landscape of my life and then I, I take note of what God has done to save me, there's only one proper response, and it's this. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you remember anything about fourth grade English class, there's, there's something called a rhetorical question. Now, the, the rhetorical question is not a question that elicits information, but it seeks to advance an argument. And, and rhetoricians use this just solely for effect because they know their audience already knows the answer. Um, by asking this question, Paul is not conveying information to us. He's trying to persuade us to accept that what he's saying is true. And he wants, to allow, he wants it to allow us to transform our hearts, minds, and lives. Let me make it plain for you. This is not a question that Paul needs help answering, but is a declaration of absolute certainty of what he's saying. Let me say it like this. When Paul stands forward and he uses the rhetorical phrase, if God is for us, who can be against us? The only proper response for the Christian should be, amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen, Paul. That's the only proper response for the Christian because that's the answer in and of itself is there is nobody there is no thing, there is no one that can be against us when God is on our side. See, this is what Paul was trying to get the people to understand, that if, if, if God did all the work of salvation, all the work of drawing you and wooing you to himself, if he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you in the state that you were in, Romans 5 says that you were an enemy of God, at the time that he began the work of salvation. If God is willing to do all of that, then it can only mean one thing, that God is for you. 
God shows his for-usness in verse 32 where he says this. He says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if he did that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I like this word spare. That word spare means to, to withhold. God did not withhold his only son from us. What that means is when Jesus got to the cross, by the time Jesus had been nailed to the cross, if you were to go into heaven's vault and his, heaven's treasury and ask God if there was anything less left, he would say, there's nothing left for me to give. I've given it all in him. Everything that God had to give for your salvation and mine was given in Christ. He didn't withhold anything. But I also like this word because this, this word here points us back to Genesis chapter 22. And if you read your Bible at all, you would know that Genesis chapter two, 22 covers a story about a man named Abe and his wife Sarah. Now Abe and his wife were, were really old. I mean past, past their prime old. So if they wanted to experience some intimacy one with another, they needed some help. They couldn't get in the game like they wanted to. Don't look at me all sanctified like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. See, Abe and, Abe and Sarah were, were so old that they would have been the people in the Cialis commercials that you see. Right? You, you know what I'm talking about. You know the older, older folks and they, they trying to get they groove back like Stella and, and you know, the first scene is them, is them dancing all nice in the, in the club all close and and all smooth and stuff, and then they give each other that look. You, you know that look. Sometimes, sometimes if you're married, you whisper a code word that says it's time to go. Y'all married folk know what I'm talking about, but, but in the commercial, they give each other that look, and then the scene shifts, and it's always a weird scene, the next scene, because for some reason, they're always in a tub, but it's not the same tub, it's two separate tubs. And they're outside, but they're holding hands next to each other in the tub. Y'all seen that commercial? No? It, yeah, it's kind of weird. It's a little weird. But, but this, was, this was Abe and Sarah. This was, this was the type of couple they were. They were past their prime, and they needed some help. Because God had told them in their old age that, God was gonna, that he was going to give them a son by his wife, Sarah, who was past childbearing years and Sarah overheard this one day and she said she laughed to herself and said am, am I in my old age am I am I supposed to enjoy pleasure again she didn't believe God and so God had to act on their behalf and he put his super on their natural and out came a bumbling baby boy and as he grew up you could see that he was the apple of Abe's eye because that was his son from his wife one day God shows up and he says, Abe, I, I know I, I gave you the son and I, I told you he was going to be uh, the heir of promise, but I want him back. Now you can imagine the trepidation in, in Abe's heart, his only son, who had been born of a miracle and God wanting him back. I, I, I've, I've got an only son. And, and I remember when he was born being in the, the you know, they, they do the ultrasound. And I remember accidentally almost punching the technician because I was so excited because I was finally having a boy after having two girls. And so I can imagine 
Abe wrestling with God about wanting to give up his son that God had promised to him. And yet the Bible says that Abe was obedient and Abe was faithful. And Abe, despite how he was feeling, trusted God. I'm married and I look at that picture and I notice something interesting. I noticed that Abe didn't go talk to Sarah about it. I can picture my wife at the stove frying chicken and me coming up to her and telling her that God wants us to give our son back. And seeing the flames shoot out of her eyes, I'd be very afraid of the hot grease in the pan at that moment because no mother is going to want to give her child back that was promised to her. So Abraham takes some wood and he straps it on the back of Isaac and they begin going up the mountain and Isaac being an astute young man, he says, Dad, I see the wood and I I see how we're going to make this fire, but where's the sacrifice? And any, any parent that knows when you have kids that ask too many questions, you just kind of ignore them. So Abraham doesn't even really answer him. He says, God will provide. So Isaac, being a, a good young lad, he keeps moving up the mountain. They get to the top of the mountain. Abraham builds the altar, and Isaac stops him and says, Dad, I, I see the wood for the altar, and I, I see the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abe says, Son, God will provide. Go ahead up and climb up on that wood. Could you imagine being Isaac, trusting your dad, and yet at the same time being unsure of what he's really trying to tell you? Climbing up on that wood and laying there with your father over top of you and a knife over top of your torso waiting for him to hammer it down. And right before Abraham's arm can can come down on top of his son, an angel of the Lord appears and said, wait, don't do it. I know that you love me now. I know that you you trust me now. I know that you'll be obedient in everything that I tell you to do now because you were willing to give up your son and you did not withhold him from me. And God being the God that he is provided a ram in the bush. And so he turned, Abraham turned, and there caught in the thicket was a ram that he could use to sacrifice. But, oh, people of God, if you don't know, Isaac was just a foreshadowing of a ram that was to come. See, where, where, where Isaac was able to get up off the wood, Christ was nailed to it. Where Isaac got up with breath in his lungs, Christ exhaled and inhaled until there was no breath left in his body where Isaac was able to walk back home with his dad. Jesus was put into a grave. I don't know if you know, but there is a ram that was caught in the bush for you and for me. And when we talk about this idea, there's a, a huge theological word that sums up what I'm trying to say, and it's called substitute. See, see, you, you belonged on the wood. It should have been you on the wood. You should have been the one being sacrificed on the wood, but God made provision in Christ so that he did not spare his own son so that you could have life. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. God God gave him up. He gave him up. I like that phrase because Paul 
uses it in chapter 1. And it's the, it's the same phrase, but he uses it negatively in chapter 1. See, in, in chapter 1, verse 24, he says that God gave them up to their impurities. This was people, remember, Paul was laying out his argument, and he says that God, the righteousness of God is revealed against all ungodliness and how people refused to worship God as the creator and instead worship the creature and how they didn't want to acknowledge God as God and give him his due praise. And instead, they wanted to worship their idols. So it says in verse 24 that God gave them over to their impurity. Verse 26, he uses that phrase again. God gave them over to their dishonorable passions. God gave them over in verse 28 through their debased mind. I know you don't hear me today, but the only reason that God hasn't given you over is because God gave him up. God gave him up. And then it says, he says, if, if God is for you and there's nothing that can stand against you, there's, there's no opposition, well, there's, there's nothing that ultimately matters. We, we do experience opposition. We experience frustration. We experience losing a loved one. We experience tightness in our financials. We experience a lack of education that makes it difficult to advance in careers. We experience family drama and brokenness. We experience these things. But when he says that, that there can be nothing against us if God is for us, he's saying that there's nothing, there's no opposition in person or an event that ultimately can do anything to you if God is for you. So if this is true, and God worked this out because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, God gave the entire treasury of heaven, then if God did all of that, will he not also with him give us all things? This is what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to get you to understand. He said, man, you're making too much of a big deal about your bills right now. Don't you remember that God gave his only son for you? said, you're, you're too focused on your sickness right now. Don't you remember that God gave his only son for you? Is it a big deal for God to fix your marriage when he already gave his only son for you? He's trying to get you to understand there is no circumstance that you will experience in this life that can overcome that God will not work in. Is it too hard for God if he's already given you all things? This should be an encouragement for God's people today to know that God already gave the best of what he had to give in his son. So giving you anything else is nothing. Nothing. It is this assurance of God's for usness that allows Paul to conclude in verse 35 that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. See, in verse 35, Paul begins to hearken back to his experiences as a missionary, going in and sharing the gospel and, and, and feeling some difficulties. And look at what he says. He's, he says he begins to run down the Rolodex of what he's been through. And he can speak from experience now. And he says this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Persecution, no. What about famine, Paul? No. What about nakedness? No. Danger, no. Sword, no. 
Paul is rolling through his Rolodex of experience and telling you there is absolutely nothing on this side of eternity that you can experience that will remove you from the hand of God. Listen to me. God's love has such a stranglehold on you that even death can't loosen its grip. That's what he says down in verse 38. Look with me. He says, for I am sure. Paul is, Paul is proclaiming this with absolute certainty about his God. He says, I am sure that, that neither death nor life, that neither angels or rulers, things present or things to come, there are no powers nor height or depth. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of Christ. Hear me today, God's people. When you're going through difficulty, when you have some fear, when you've been emotionally distressed, when you've been disturbed and you're depressed, when it feels like life is pressing in on you on every side, you got to look in your Bible and remember that God is for us. And there is absolutely nothing, come hella high water, that can take you out of his hand. Absolutely nothing. See, we've, we've got to remember these truths. Oftentimes, we, we get that tunnel vision. You know, they, they've got those horses down in Center City, and they've got the blinders on. And the reason that they have the blinders on is because they don't want the horses to see the cars whizzing by them and get scared and run off in the wrong direction. And so they give them a purposeful tunnel vision so they can only see what's in front of them and not to the peripheral. And oftentimes, that's how we view our situations. We look at our difficulty and our circumstances, and we get a tunnel vision, and all we see is right what's before our eyes, and we refuse to look at what God is doing all around us. But I'm here to tell you right now today that when life presses its, hard, its hand hard up against you, when you feel discouraged and you don't know where to turn, when you think even God is out to get you, you've got to remember that if God was willing to not withhold his son and do everything possible to justify you, sanctify you, reconcile you, adopt you, and glorify you, then you've got to remember this, these four words. God is for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and our God, what do we say to these things? What do we say? Is there anything to say when we're overwhelmed with the depths of your love for us? There's nothing to say but to be assured and remember that you're for us. That should give us confidence. That should strengthen our hands when we're weary. That you are working all things out for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. That you are for us that you are on our side. Imagine that, God, the creator of heaven and earth, 
who has created everything that we can see with our eyes and that we can't see so intricately. When we think about the, the vastness of time and space, the planets, the solar system, the ant and the insects, the whale and the dolphin, the kangaroo, when we think about humanity and rationalization, when we think about all that you've created and then we're reminded that you love us and that you are for us, there should be no fear in us when the God of heaven and earth is on our side. And so, Father, we come before you asking you to prepare our hearts and our minds to be courageous, to face everything that you've put before us with obedient faith to our God, who is almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful and yet still knows us intimately and is for us. It changes our perspective on life and on circumstance when we remember that our God is for us. So Father, we pray that as we leave this place today, we would remember these words and that it would be rooted in our soul to know that our God loves us, he cares about us, and he is there for our ultimate good. Help us, Father, to remember that and to live our lives in a way that honors you in every single thing that we do. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.